Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast, always from the Byline Times. It's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the resignations of Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Health Secretary Sajid Javid after Prime Minister Boris Johnson's frankly inconsistent account of the appointment of Chris Pincher, the Tamworth MP, as his assistant chief whip. Pincher has now stepped down after a drunken assault, but it turns out that Johnson had previously been warned about his behaviour, despite having said that he wasn't. We'll hear from Jeevan Sander in a little while from the LSA and from the Byline Times, Westminster and political editor Adam Bienkoff. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. And we can report without fear or favour because there's no wealthy proprietor behind us, nobody asking us to delete stories that might offend their mates. Our funding comes from ordinary readers and listeners taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. So please subscribe if you can. You get details about how to subscribe at our newsbreaking website. That's at bylinetimes.com bylinetimes.com. Let's speak now to uh, Adam Bienkoff. Adam is the political editor and Westminster editor of the Byline Times. Adam, uh, I don't think we were quite expecting this, were we? Well, things were very febrile today in in, uh, Houses of Parliament. Uh, There was a lot of activity from Conservative MPs, uh, ministers having political private meetings. It did seem like something was a foot and certainly been picking up a lot of dissatisfaction among Conservative MPs about uh, Johnson's handling of the Chris Pincher scandal. Um, the, unlike the, the Partygate scandal, there was a lot of anger from Conservative MPs about that. The Chris Pincher scandal is something that directly affects Conservative MPs. Um, Chris Pincher was a Deputy Chief Whip. He's affected, he holds a, a role in the party of looking after their welfare. Um, so this is some, something that directly affected them and their lives uh, and their time in Parliament. So they felt it quite personally in some cases. And after the by-elections um, and after Johnson had promised that he would reform his behaviour and reform Downing Street, it seems what's happened in the last five days or so, just a repeat of how he handled Partygate. And I think lots of people in the party just decide that enough is enough. And there was a lot of pressure being put on ministers to, in, in the eyes of the rebels, do the decent thing and put pressure on Johnson to resign. Um, I wasn't sure if that was actually going to happen, but it clearly is. And we're now seeing a, a pretty wide-scale uh, resignations. I expect we'll probably can see more in the coming hours as well. And that does presumably spell the end for Boris Johnson. There's no way back from your Chancellor resigning. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think I, 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 think I said to you at the time, um, once you've had, once you've, got to the position where a confidence vote is held in the Prime Minister, regardless of the result of it, your time, your days are pretty much numbered. It's just a question of how long it's going to take. Um, once once the party has crossed that threshold, then you're already done for. Um, I, th- I think it's incredibly hard to see how Johnson could possibly survive this. That's not to say that he's going to resign, although I think he, there's a chance he might, but I think that's, he probably won't. But if he doesn't resign, I think it's very clear that um, Conservative MPs will do what they need to do in order to get rid of him. I mean, looking at some of the names coming out tonight, somebody like Conservative MP John, Jonathan Gullis, who is 
one of Johnson's biggest cheerleaders on the back benches, you know, has, has sort of briefed me in the corridors before about what a wonderful job Johnson is doing and why he should remain prime minister for, for you know decades more. If somebody like that is coming out against Johnson, it's pretty clear that the the game is up, and it's very clear the numbers are there. If, if there were a, a confidence vote today, I think he would lose by some margin. Um, and if he refuses to resign, I think the party will make sure that the rules are changed before recess in order for that to happen. Yeah, in fact, as as we're speaking, Adam, I've got breaking news, and it it probably isn't quite of the magnitude of uh, Jonathan Gully speaking out against the Prime Minister, but it's indicative, perhaps, I think, of people who might have supported Johnson previously who are now turning against him. So this is Nicola Richards. She is the mm-hmm. MP for West Bromwich East, and she took that seat in, you know, one of the classic red wall seats, traditionally Labour. Now, she's on the lowest rung of the ministerial ladder. She's a PPS, yeah. Parliamentary Private Secretary, to the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps. She tonight now has said that she is no longer willing to serve as PPS to Grant Shapps. Now, you know, that's that's just one backbencher. But she's one of those people who, when the confidence vote was held recently, which Johnson, of course, narrowly won, she's one of those people who, because of her position on that ministerial ladder, however lowly, would have felt obliged to vote with Johnson. So if people like Nicola Richards, Red Wall MP, are voting against him or deciding to step down from their, their ministerial position really you know that's it isn't it yes i mean we exactly we're starting to see people who uh, who either backed the prime minister or, or stayed silent at the time of the confidence vote and i think it's it's typical that it's a red war mp doing this um the recent by-elections there was a lot of focus on the result in tiverton for good reason but actually in some ways the result in wakefield was more significant for the Prime Minister's future because it was a Red Bull seat and it showed, I mean, a lot. A big reason why he won the confidence vote was because he still retained the confidence of Red Bull MPs who believed that he may be more popular in, in their part of the country than elsewhere. Um, the by-election of Wakefield proved to a lot of those same MPs that that wasn't the case. So I think the fact that she's turning against him now is indicative of that, of that broader shift, which is why, as I say, I think he would lose that confidence vote if and if and when it does have to happen mm. you're listening to byline radio or a catch-up the byline times podcast discussing the resignations of the chancellor rishi sunak and the health secretary sajid javid from the government from boris johnson's cabinet also keen to hear what you think if you're listening live if you're listening via the twitter app on your smartphone in the bottom left hand corner of your phone there will be a little microphone icon you can tap that and if you've got something useful to say by all means join in we'd love to hear your contribution adam we spoke on the podcast only a couple of days ago in fact we recorded it yesterday morning didn't we how long ago yeah, that, that seems yeah. uh, about uh, Pinchgate, as it's been called and the the way in which this episode has been handled is just i described it kindly i think as inconsistent by mm. the We've had kind of three stages to this, haven't we, where it's been suggested that initially that Johnson had no suggestion that Pincher had behaved inappropriately previously. Then it came to light that perhaps he'd been warned because there had been an investigation and that came to nothing. We had Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, uh, appearing this morning on national radio, uh, defending Johnson, but then being 
contradicted by a former senior civil servant saying mm. that Pincher had been investigated and it wasn't a case that there was nothing to see here. So Johnson's authority, Johnson's ability to just tell the story straight was not for the first time, it has to be said, but was you know, fiercely scrutinised, called into question. And uh, to many people, it's remarkable that he survived this long, but it, the sense perhaps that this is the straw that broke, that breaks the camel's back. Yes, I think it was, you know, it was party gate all over again, wasn't it? It was uh, a crisis emerged down the street instead of sort of dealing with the crisis head on and or admitting fault or, or trying to, brave it out just took took one unsustainable line then replaced it with another unsustainable line and then another one um and and every turn making things worse for themselves and just uh, making the crisis even worse and lying about it um i think the turning point today really was that letter from lord Macdonald this morning um i think that really did have a big effect on on conservative mps um and it's unlike Partygate, as I say, which is, was a matter of, yes, it's a matter of morality and a, a lot of people in the country felt very strongly about it for, for good reason. In this case, Johnson, I mean, going, going beyond the lies and the kind of politics of it, the situation is that he, there was a an abuser in Parliament, essentially, somebody who has, has a hist- had a history of uh, abusing people, of uh, sexually harassing and, and, and worse and he was protected by the prime minister who was aware of those allegations and who then lied about it. So that in some ways you could argue it's much more serious than Partygate. And the fact that somebody very senior like uh, Lord Macdonald should come out and publicly s- say, look, something, you know, that we can't go on like this. We can't go, go on with Danny Street lying to the public, essentially. Um, I think that did have an effect on ministers and on MPs. Um, and I think looking back on it, we may see that as the the sort of final straw that broke the broke the back. I think. Yeah, just uh, worth reflecting a little bit on Lord Macdonald's letter, and I don't propose to read all of it. It's quite a long and detailed letter, but I will give people the gist of it because you may be forgiven for not of not having read all of it. And he has written to the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. Catherine Stone, because he was concerned about what he was hearing coming out of 10 Downing Street. So he's a former top civil servant in the Foreign Office, writing to the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, Catherine Stone, saying, five days after Mr Pinch's resignation as Deputy Chief Whip, there remained significant confusion surrounding complaints about his behaviour prior to the drunkenness he admits at the Carlton Club on the 29th of June. Inaccurate claims by 10 Downing Street continue to be repeated in the media. On the 3rd of July, the BBC website reported no official complaints against Mr Pincher were ever made. This is not true. In the summer of 2019, shortly after he was appointed Minister of State at the Foreign Office, a group of officials complained to me about Mr Pincher's behaviour. I discussed the matter with the relevant official at the Cabinet Office. In substance, the allegations were similar to those made about his behaviour at the Carlton Club. An investigation upheld the complaint. Mr Pincher apologised and promised not to repeat the inappropriate behaviour. And he goes on to say there was no repetition uh, of his behaviour then. And so that 
contradicts the suggestion from mm. Dan Street, from the Prime Minister's official spokesman, that Johnson knew that the allegations were either resolved or did not progress to a formal complaint. They obviously had done, and Lord MacDonald basically saying that Downing Street was lying. Yes, and uh, they were. And uh, this is a question that I I put to uh, the Prime Minister's official spokesman today, which is which essentially, did the Prime Minister lie to you or did you lie to us? Um, because it's either way, it's clear that you've been misleading the press and you've been misleading the public. And when somebody like Lord MacDonald comes out and essentially says that, it's very hard for people to argue against it. And it's telling that he is a former senior civil servant because one of the big mistakes that Johnson has made in recent months has been to pick this fight with the civil service. Um, you know, we've had uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg putting notes on desks. We've had freezing the civil service, um, fast stream uh, plans to sack lots of civil service right across the board. Um, and this has created, and, 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 and of course, um, the many civil servants who were fined over Partygate, junior civil servants who were fined over Partygate, while, whereas the Prime Minister seemed to escape with a sort of just with a £50 fine for one event. And this has created a lot of resentment among civil servants, uh, some of whom I've spoken to who say that relations between uh, Downing Street and the civil service are the worst they've ever seen in their entire career. Um, and that was a big mistake for Johnson to pick that fight. And I think had he not have picked that fight, we may not have had that letter from uh, Lord MacDonald this morning. Yeah, that is an interesting point because, of course, there have been threats to significantly reduce the civil service. Mm. I mean, this is a, a very age-old conservative tactic, isn't it? The idea that we need to cut back on the state, portraying civil servants in some way as yeah. the enemy. I read one commentator at the weekend in a conservative newspaper referring to the blob. The blob is frequently invoked in these culture wars, isn't it, by the right? The blob relating to that bit of the state, which in its eyes remains resolutely left-wing, refusing to move with the Tory times. So it was very much part of the ongoing conservative culture war. And as you say, Lord MacDonald yes. might, have, might have felt, hold on a minute, you know, we've got to we've got to push back against this a little bit. But he, and, and but ultimately, you know, Prime Ministers come and go, but the civil service remains. I think Johnson was foolish to uh, forget that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where does it go from here? I mean, at the moment, he is still the Prime Minister and he's yep. lost a Chancellor, he's lost a Health Secretary. It, it, it doesn't follow. There's no constitutional necessity for him at this point to resign. He could simply choose two other people to fill those posts. No, I mean, and I think um, most Prime Ministers in this position would have resigned overwhelmingly. Um, but yes, he had a, he called some of his biggest supporters to on the back benches to his office at six o'clock this evening um and he was by all accounts very bullish in that meeting um he was saying suggesting it was actually a good thing that Rishi Sunak could resign because now he'd be able to make more tax cuts um there's some suggestion that we may see a very rapid reshuffle even tonight with uh, people perhaps Liz Truss moved into become chancellor um, somebody else, uh, I'm not sure who would be moved in to, to replace uh, Javid. Um, so it's possible we could see that. They could try and ride it out. Um, but again, I think it's a, they're fighting a losing game here. Um, we're going to see more resignations. Um, 
the more they try and fight against this, the more he tries to fight against this, I think the more determined Conservative MPs are going to be to, to do whatever they need to do um, to take him down. And as you say, there is no constitutional uh, right for them to do that. Uh, under the Conservative Party rules, they've had one vote of confidence and it doesn't have to be one um, for another year. Um, but those rules can be changed and there's going to be, if Johnson does continue to refuse to stand down, there's going to be immense pressure on the 1922 committee to change those rules. Uh, there is going to be an election to that committee, so that could slow things down potentially. But I think there's going to be a real push to get this sorted out before recess in a, in a couple of weeks' time or a few weeks' time. Um, and so, I, I, you know, the, actual, the, the precise chronology of it, I think, is still in doubt. But I think it's highly, highly likely that we're going to see him out of Downing Street sooner rather than later. Runners and riders then to replace Johnson, assuming he goes. I mean, it is just worth reflecting on his yes. Teflon-like abilities, fable Teflon-like abilities. No prime minister in my lifetime has been such a survivor. But assuming he does go, assuming this is the final or the penultimate act of his premiership, who then, yeah. who then in Downing Street? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, on his survivor, I think the reason he survived is because he's been allowed to. Um, and I think what we're seeing in, in the last few hours, at least, is is an actual firm moves by people not to, to, to take it into their own hands. I think that's the difference this time. In terms of who can replace him, um, I think people are wrong to rule out Rishi Sunak um, as a potential. I know he had his problems over tax and, and all the rest of it and Russia, etc. Um, but I still think he's in with a, a good chance. And I think the fact that he's moved against the Prime Minister tonight will put him in good stead. Um, Javid as well, I think, will, will be in a good position. Um, I think still, though, I think the, the front runners are um, judging on surveys of Conservative Party members and, and, and MPs would be uh, Ben Wallace, who's very popular among party members, although I'm unclear about, as to how popular he is among his fellow MPs. Um, Liz Truss is, is, is still in with a chance. I think one, one to look out for is Penny Morden, who has mainly stayed out of uh, the, the infighting in recent months, but she's built up a lot of support on the Conservative uh, backbenches and among some ministers as well. She's seen as very impressive. Um, I think she would be seen as a, as a real break with the Johnson era. So I definitely would tip her to, to, to be in with a, a good chance. But I think, I think to be honest, there'll be a lot of potential candidates coming forward. I mean, a lot of the talk in recent months has been to suggest that uh, the reason Johnson survived is because there aren't any alternatives to him. I think that's, again, I don't think that's really true. I think there's lots of potential candidates, whatever you might think of them, um, who could potentially uh, win majority of MPs and, and, and become prime minister quite soon. Yeah, I suppose it all depends where the fault lines will go as well, isn't it? Whether Brexit remains a fault line for the Conservative Party, whether being a low-tax or high-tax party. I know that Sunak has been pushing for a long time towards mm -hmm. the low-tax end of things. Sort of in theory, you know, he's quite a dry Tory, isn't he? But circumstances, if nothing else, forced him into being a, a high-tax Tory. I was a little bit surprised, though, Adam, because of the non-DOM issue relating to his wife and his wife, a company related mm. to his wife, Infosys, who have operations in Russia. That did seem to have done for him just only a few weeks ago. So you're suggesting that he might still be a leadership candidate? You know the old saying that well, 
he he who wields the knife never wears the crown. Well, there is that saying, although, you know, I think political historians would actually question that and say, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are examples of where that's not been the case. Um, if you look at the polling, there has been some polling of the public about Sunak um, in recent weeks, and it, it doesn't seem to have damaged him hugely. He is still by far the most well-known figure in the in the cabinet and he still is although he has been damaged by by those stories he is still relatively popular with the public whether he is popular enough with the party and i, I think uh tax may be may be part of this uh he's seen as blocking some tax cuts um i don't know but i, I just think that i just think it, it'd be premature to to rule him out at this point but as i say i think the front runners are more likely um, to be more likely to be somebody else, but it, I think it could be quite a, a wide and open field, really. Mm. Adam, you are more than welcome to stay with us, of course, but I know you're a busy man, so if you disappear, that's fine, but I'd love it if you stayed with us a little longer. Entirely up to you. Uh, that's Adam Bienkoff, the uh, Westminster and political editor of the Byline Times. My name is Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast, trying to make sense of the resignations of the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid. I'd like to welcome to the conversation now, Jeevan Sander. Jeevan is uh, an economist at the LSE and also a political commentator. Jeevan, welcome. How are you? You all right? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. And sorry for the delay. It's been a bit manic for all of us, I suspect, this evening. No, listen, it's been uh, it's great to have you. And it's been great to get Adam's insight as well. And a man who's got his finger on the pulse in the corridors of power. How many cliches can I get into one statement? But from your point of view, Jeevan, slightly more detached than Adam. Has this come as a surprise to you? No, I've thought it's been over for a long time. I think it's been over since the Allegra Stratton video was released. You know, at that point in time, we saw that two thirds of the public about that much wanted him to resign. Those are the same numbers Nixon had when he was forced to resign. And we ask ourselves, when is it that leaders have to go? It's when the public turns on them. And politicians at the end of the day follow incentives. Conservative MPs want to keep their jobs. They want to remain as MPs. They saw the writing on the wall and said, you know, if I want that, I can't have Boris Johnson. I think the reason it's taken so long is because Boris Johnson appointed a cabinet largely of those who are loyal to him rather than those who are competent. I think that's why you had people like Nadine Doris there, people who also knew that they were not going to get another job if this government fell. And actually, there was therefore, until this point, no leadership for a possible rebellion. And now we've seen, of course, today another nail or another kind of hit in that particular place. But look, at the end of it all, back when the public knew that their loved ones were dying and they weren't allowed to see them, but Boris Johnson was partying, they said this man hasn't been fit to be prime minister. The Conservative Party have chosen to keep him for this long. And actually what it's really done is damaged their reputation, of course, stopped anything really being passed or any governing being able to happen whilst we are facing our greatest once-in-a-lifetime fallen incomes. And on top of that, of course, Putin's invasion in Ukraine. Although, of course, the the Ukraine situation has been slightly double-edged for him, hasn't he? Certainly in Ukraine, he's revered very much as a hero. I've spoken on the podcast to mm. Ukrainian MPs who say that of all the European leaders, the one who has done most for Ukraine has been Boris Johnson. Now, I don't know how how much that really plays out with the British public, but there has been a real upsurge in sympathy towards the Ukrainian people follow, following Putin's invasion. So I suspect that 
there is an element where of, of people feeling a, at least a warmth towards Johnson mm. on that account, if nothing else. Yeah, I can see that. Look, I appreciate the fact that Boris Johnson stood full square behind Ukraine. I think now providing a lot more weapons than we have done, I think as well in this time to come, future economic aid to Ukraine, which will certainly be required. I certainly appreciate it, right? But I think also people and the public learned, knew rather how to walk and chew gum at the same time. They knew both that actually we can have a prime minister we don't want to have because he's unfit in office and also appreciate what he's doing on the other side. We also know that every single other conservative leadership candidate will certainly all be fighting with each other to see who can give the most support to Ukraine, who can be most hawkish. And I think one of the reasons we're talking about Ben Wallace is because of that, because we're thinking about the person who who will be able to provide defence. You know, defence of the realm is now a very real kind of, not a possibility, but rather concern for the British public in a way that it hasn't been since at least the end of the Cold War. Let me bring Adam Bienkoff back in. I'll come back to you again in a moment, Jeevan. Mm. But uh, Adam, uh, we were chatting about how Boris Johnson might deal with this. Well, he is true to his ideal, at least, of carrying on and going forward and all, all those sort of things that Johnson likes to say. Um, Steve Barclay is the new health secretary. And uh, if I'm right in thinking, Steve Barclay is, is an arch Brexiter, a kind of hard... Brexit. Mm. So again, perhaps that's uh, an indicator of if Johnson does stay, where he's likely to drive his politics. Well, it's no great surprise that Barclays brought in. He's a sort of arch loyalist, uh, steady pair of hands as far as Johnson is concerned. Um, I mean, as far as w- what it means for the ideology of the, the government, I don't think it'll make a, a massive difference. And actually, I think if there is a, uh, if and when he does go, I don't think there will be be a real sort of the debate in the party won't really be about uh, a change in direction politically i think most of the candidates will be in favor of protecting ukraine will be in favor of getting brexit done in their eyes um i don't think we'll see any sort of ideological shift in the party i think it will come down to personalities it will come down to which leader is seen as being the the clearest break from the johnson era um maybe somebody quite different from johnson which I think Sunak would definitely feel. Um, ben Wallace, I think, is closer to the to Johnson, but I think he's he's vastly more popular with Conservative uh, um, Party members. Um, so yes, I don't, I don't think Barclay is is really going to to change the the sort of the colour of the government really in, in any great shape or form. And uh, Jeevan, do you see in terms of who might replace Johnson Brexit? no longer being this decisive issue. We've spoken on the podcast and mm. read articles at bylinetimes.com recently, not least from our colleague Sam Bright, you know, saying that Brexit is no longer the big electoral issue that it was. It's no longer the big red wall issue. In a sense, we're, we're kind of in a post-Brexit landscape now. So it was, to use Sam Bright's phrase, it was Johnson's superpower. It's not anymore, is it? It's not. And it's one of the great ironies of Boris Johnson's premiership. You know, once he got Brexit done, it made his own position far more vulnerable. You know, when you raise politics, the existential questions about what a nation is, in this case, whether or not you are or not part of the European Union, whether or not you can or cannot control the number of migrants who come to this country, which is a fundamental question about where Britain wants to be, people will allow you more leeway because they see that as being more important. You know, the public 
contrary to popular perception, was never hugely enamoured of Boris Johnson. There was a certain sexy electorate that was. They're also willing to forgive kind of his own foibles proroguing parliament because they saw this fundamental goal as an important question of where Britain is and what Britain will be, that existential question. The same, by the way, is true of Donald Trump. Donald Trump's own kind of, you know, not just gaffes, but also acted in office, forgiven for those who really see it as a crucial moment to save America or indeed make it great again. But now Brexit is done. You know, we've all accepted that Brexit is now a facet of our lives. Of course, Keir Starmer coming out and saying we're going to make Brexit work. It just doesn't have the same purchase or pull anymore. You know, that's not a reason to keep him in office, at which point he stops to come back to more conventional questions of leadership. It is something he will try to play, but I think, again, will mean less and less each time he says it. And now particularly very little, given the fact that the, where the Labour Party is on this question, I just don't see it it playing for him. And more broadly as well, I mean, Brexit or Boris Johnson's Brexit isn't going very well. And that's something that, you know, as recognised across the board in polling, irrespective of whether or not people wanted it or not, even Leavers are now saying this version of Brexit is not certainly the one that we were sold or the one that we necessarily wanted. Indeed not. And uh, did a podcast just a few days ago with uh, Tom Sampson from the LSE, from your own educational establishment, talking about some of the ways in which Brexit appeared to have harmed the economy. And I said to him, well, can you point to any areas in which Brexit has improved the economy? And he was speaking straight down the line as an academic, not from a, a Brexiter or a Remainer point of view, just as an academic saying it is very difficult to point to any economic advantages that Brexit has delivered so far for this country. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast, talking about the resignations of Chancellor Rishi Sunak and the Health Secretary Sajid Javid from Boris Johnson's cabinet. Don't forget to support Byline Times by taking out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at Byline Times. Com. Uh, Ian is joining us, I think. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Hi, Adrian. I'm good, you? Welcome, my friend. Go on. What's your take on all this? Yeah, very a bit of a sideline one, which is something you haven't discussed today, is Johnson's finished. I don't think anybody thinks he'll be PM in a week's time it, because the 1922 will, will call vote and no confidence. I've seen other MPs today in the last few minutes have said they're not going to support him anymore. So my question is, I've just seen a tweet from uh, Sky News saying that Keir Starmer said he would support a general election. Regardless of who leader is, by the time we get to conferences in September, are we expecting an autumn general election? Mm-hmm. That is a very good question, uh, Ian. Thank you. Let me put that to, that to uh, Adam. Go on, Adam. Yeah, I would just say, just to add, the reason I say that is, is whoever, whether it's even Johnson or whoever, will need a new mandate, basically. Well, uh, you may think so, but of course there is no constitutional <laughs> mechanism to guarantee that. But that's an interesting point, Ian. Thank you. Adam, what, what's your take on that chance of a, an autumn election? Well, I mean, there, there has been some briefing from uh, Johnson's allies that that could be a last roll of the dice for, if he believes he's about to be asked to call a general election. I think that's pretty unlikely. But I think that's right. If we do have a leadership election soon and we have a new prime minister by the autumn, there will. I mean, we, we've seen this in the past. There is often pressure on them to to go to a general election. I don't think that is likely. I think that um, whoever succeeds Johnson as leader will want some time to 
bid in. Would also look at the polls at the moment and suggest that, and believe that they, they, it may not be a great time to to go for it. However, on the other hand, looking at the state of the economy, they might decide that actually going sooner rather than later could benefit them. Um, if the economy continues to tank, if we go into recession next year, um, then perhaps going earlier might be better. But I think on the whole, I think probably not. I think there's no constitutional demand or re- requirement for them to go to an election after a change of leader. It's a parliamentary democracy, not a presidential one. Um, so I think, no, I think overall, I think it's more likely than not that we won't have a uh, Just uh, I mentioned earlier Nicola Richards, the West Bromwich East MP, one of those classic red wall seats, long-time Labour seat held by the former Labour, Labour deputy leader Tom Watson, and that fell to the Conservatives at the last election. Nicola Richards, I mentioned earlier, lowest rung of the chain the PPS to Grant Shapps in transport. She's decided to step down as a PPS, presumably so that she can now formally mm. oppose Boris Johnson. This is also a tweet this evening from Joe Gideon MP, Stoke-on-Trent MP, again, classic Red Wall territory. And Joe Gideon saying, with very heavy, heavy heart, I submitted a letter of no confidence to the 1920-22 committee two months ago. I think it should now be clear to everyone that the Prime Minister must go. So again, I mean, in her case, that's not a, a new point of view, but again, just emphasising how these Redwall MPs, I think initially were very loyal to Johnson. They held him uh, as partly being responsible for their election, but yeah. they now seem to be turning almost as one against him. Yes, because uh, although they did, um, they may believe that he got them their seats they're also some of the most marginal seats in the country so uh, the, you know, there's more pressure on them to get a change in leader than there would be in, in a lot a lot of the safer seats it's interesting just now looking looking at twitter there seems to be a bit of a standoff at the moment johnson trying to replace sunak as chancellor apparently he wants to get liz truss in but um Nadam sahawi is apparently uh, demanding to be moved from education to number 11 so it's gonna be interesting to see how that pans out in the coming hours there is definitely a sense of that some of these letters are being produced in concert uh, the, the very similar wording in the tweets so I, I mentioned earlier again uh, nicola richards west bromwich mp again this is from sakib batty mp for meriden mm. which is uh, in the midlands in the very middle of england uh, <laughs> saying that is reg- with great regret that he's going to resign as a parliamentary private secretary as well so it's it's these people who are very low down in the chain you know who've got no chance realistically of being called up to be chancellor yeah. or health secretary just thinking you know what, it just isn't worth it. And, and perhaps throwing their weight behind a potential well, new want- leader will, will improve their chances of getting a, a cabinet position much later on in their careers or at least a ministerial position lower down the chain. Well, there was a sense uh, among the rebels last time that they kind of missed an opportunity, uh, last uh, confidence vote, um, that there wasn't really a huge amount of organisation of them, um, which is partly why it, they, the confidence vote was held before the by-elections. And had it been held after the by-elections, they, they would have had a good chance of, of winning that vote. Um, so there has been sort of some moves in recent weeks to coordinate um, more, uh, coordinate better their responses to this. And I think that's pos- possibly what we're, we're seeing today. Um, whether or not Sunak and Javid was coordinated or whether 
one went ahead after the other came out. We I, it's too early to say. I'm not, not clear yet exactly. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, Jeevan. Uh, I'm, I'm in my sense of this, and again, I'm you know I have no particular insight into this. It's just my sense is that reading the tweet, certainly between Saki Batty and Nicola Richards' tweet, you know, you've got two Midlands-based PPSs both making the same kind of comments in their tweets. The Conservative Party has always been the party of integrity and honour, but recent events have undermined trust and standards in public life. It is for this reason that, sadly, I must resign. You know, it's like they've they've all been written by the same tweet artist, and there is something going on, isn't there, now, that that, that will unseat Johnson one way or another. Yeah, and probably not hugely surprising that, as you said, they're from those seats the Conservatives gained, also those we'd expect to go back to Labour as the polling stands. Looks they know what sides their bread is buttered on, and that is they have to stay an MP, and they realise that with Johnson there, you know, that's not going to happen. They may, of course, have also voted against him at the last no-confidence vote um, without, you know, without having to say so, given it was a secret, secret ballot, I think the Conservative MPs know that the game is up. I think they knew that as the last no-confidence vote as well, and they've been waiting for it. And also, look, I will say that I've spoken to you know people around the Conservative Party, and one thing they said is, yes, we're all sick of it, but we kind of are waiting for this to end. We know how awful it is too. So I think it's certainly true. I think they're saying the same thing because they also feel the same way. And I don't think any of them really got into politics to defend this kind of behaviour and it becomes very difficult to excuse. You know, we should remember why is it that we're here? Firstly, Boris Johnson has lied and by doing so has undermined democracy. You know, in a democracy, we need our leaders to tell the truth. We can't consent to be governed when we're lied to. That's the kind of thing Vladimir Putin does. We're also secondly appointing Chris Witcher as a deputy chief whip, a man who was alleged to have committed multiple sexual assaults as well as effectively a deputy head of HR And finally, of course, telling people that they couldn't visit their loved ones while they were dying whilst he himself was partying. I think any of them are proud of that. I think they're very well aware of the fact that Boris Johnson will go down as probably one of the worst prime ministers we've ever had, and they want to get out as well. I've got to thank, by the way, the very kind Cathy, who's acting as my unpaid producer on this show and linking me into various tweets that are relevant to this. And the Innesmon MP, Virginia Crosby, has resigned as PPS to the Wales office. And her letter of resignation is really, really strong. She does say it's been an honour to serve in the department alongside her wonderful colleagues, but then goes on to say, sadly, I'm forced to say that the sheer number of allegations of impropriety and illegality, many of them centred around Downing Street and your premiership is quite simply making your position untenable. I'm of the view that if you continue in office, then you risk irrevocably harming this government and the Conservative Party and will hand the keys of Downing Street to a Labour Party, which she says is unfit to govern. The inaccurate and contradictory statements over what you knew about the former Deputy Chief Whip's conduct before you appointed him was the last straw. I cannot continue to defend your actions to my Innismon constituents who were rightly very angry. Like others, I've given you the benefit of the doubt on many occasions. This was in the hope you would gain control of the situation. However, I believe the situation is becoming worse. So she she does go on to talk about the brilliant work many ministers are doing in other areas of government. But that's a pretty damning criticism from one of your own backbench MPs. Yeah. 
I would agree. So certainly um, doesn't look great and certainly does look like it's just, it is going to get, to get worse and worse. And I think also we're all seeing a clear divide here as well, both in terms of the policy side. So Rishi Sunak clear differences as well as on the character side as well. It's becoming very, very difficult. I think for Boris Johnson to display anything he can give to them. He can't change in terms of his character and in terms of policies, doesn't really have much left to deliver. Leveling up has now fallen by the wayside. Public services, he doesn't want to spend anymore. And also he's raised quite a few taxes. It's not clear what he can do at this point in time. You know, one of the ironies of this situation is as you become further and further down towards the end of your premiership, the political capital you're manoeuvred to move also becomes smaller and smaller just at the time when you need it to be more nimble to try and build another coalition here of Conservative MPs. And that's certainly starting to decline for Boris Johnson at this point in time. Yeah, there is time for somebody else, though, isn't there? I mean, we're not due an election until 2024. So there is time for somebody else to get their feet under the table. Adam has spoken about what they describe as the strong headwinds into which the economy is heading. And, you know, these will be pretty turbulent waters. But if you think of a Conservative Prime Minister with inevitably, it seems to me, the backing of much of the right-wing press, that isn't guaranteed for every Tory Prime Minister. John Major had his difficulties and Theresa May did in particular because of her situation on Brexit. But broadly, you're going to get the support of the Mail, the Sun, the Telegraph, maybe the Times. So you've, you've got a lot You've got a lot of wind in your sails from from the media, from the press in particular. If you if you set in, and you can you can say that was the other guy. I mean, Johnson himself was very good at that, wasn't he? So you're kind of washing his hands of a previous decade worth of conservative decisions, saying I'm the new government. When in fact he had served in the previous one. I think it's something they could definitely or will definitely try to do, both distinguish himself from Boris Johnson as much as possible. I will say that's one of the things that Boris Johnson said he did do, right? He reinvented the Conservative Party. It's why until this very moment, or at least kind of where we kind of resume politics as normal, the idea of the Conservatives having been in power for a decade when Boris Johnson first came to office we're seeing that line, that line wasn't very effective because that's when he was talking about levelling up the country, presented himself as something new. It's certainly true the next person will have, you know, should have a run in. And actually, if I was, a, if I had have been a potential successor, I think that's one of the reasons you should have, or they should have stuck the knife in a bit earlier to give themselves that that run into the next election. I think now it's it's becoming increasingly difficult and more more tricky. At the end of it, though, they are still facing that that circle that, that I don't think can be squared, which is the public want more spending on public services. But the Conservative Party wanted to be a low-tax, low-spend party. And Boris Johnson papered over those cracks when he came in, but found increasingly difficult with his own chancellor having those fights. I'm not sure how you both win a Conservative leadership election saying, I want to cut taxes, I want to cut spending, and then immediately try to pivot to spend more, given how fractious your backbenchers are and given the fact that actually the authority Boris Johnson had at the beginning, I won an election with an AC majority, will no longer be yours. So I don't, I don't envy the next successor kind of there the lot they are given and i suspect actually given the fundamentals it might end up being a completely impossible position for them adam i just want to pick up uh, again on ian's point if, if you were a new conservative leader would you not want to go to the country however difficult things are it may 
just be the the thing to re-energise your premiership. You might think. I mean, you you would probably bank on losing, wouldn't you? 30, well, I, 40, maybe fifty seats. But that, you, well, if, if you lost, if you lost forty, I suppose you might be in trouble electorally. But you could lose a lot of seats and still have a clear majority. Well, I think you can draw a parallel with the end of the New Labour era when Tony Blair stood down and uh, Gordon Brown took over. And there was a big demand on him to go for an early election to, to win a mandate. And he was actually, he had a sort of honeymoon period after he took over. Um, and he ultimately, you know, in, in the, the words of the Conservatives, bottled that choice and actually lost a lot of popularity after that and, and deeply regretted not going for that election sooner. Um, so I think that that is one sort of parallel there that could be drawn by a new leader. Uh, if they come in and replace Johnson, uh, comes up with a couple of popular policies, um, has a bit of a honeymoon period with the public, gets a lot of support from conservative sporting newspapers. Um, yes, I can certainly see a situation where they might think, let's go early, particularly with the headwinds coming on strongly. Let's, let's take this honeymoon and go for it now because ultimately no government lasts forever, no matter who the leader is. And the longer you stay in government, the, the Conservatives have been in government a long time now, the more enemies you collect and the fewer friends you have. And, and ultimately, the, the mood for change in the country also gradually builds. And we can see that's, that's building. Whether or not it's, you know, whether they go early or whether they go late, you know, are they, is, it too, is it too much of a, too high of a mountain to climb? I don't know. But yes, you're certainly right in terms of the swing that is needed for a, um, a majority Labour government. It is a huge swing that's required and that may be too much for Keir Starmer. Of course, the, the other uh, thing that we haven't spoken about is that, yes, we could have a Conservative Party leadership election very soon. There's also a possibility we could have a Labour Party leadership election. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. The reports that Durham Police had had meetings today about their decision. So we could get an announcement as soon as tomorrow about what happens with Keir Starman. And although... And again, sorry, Adam, just to interrupt there, just again, for people who may, who may not be quite up with what he's saying, of course, this was about <laughs> allegations that Keir Starmer in what has been called, is it Beergate? Yeah. Uh, allegations that when he was in Durham, that he was drinking in a group of people contrary to lockdown rules. And he has said that if he does receive a fine in order to differentiate himself from Boris Johnson, he would resign as Labour Party leader. So, yeah, as you say, yeah. we could soon find neither Johnson nor Starmer. And if, and if that were to happen, then um, you could have a new conservative leader, um, you know, particularly if they're sort of, if, they, if they're replaced quite quickly, you could have a new conservative leader thinking, well, the Labour Party are in turmoil. Let's go to the country sooner rather than later. So I think, yes, it is certainly possible that that could, that could happen. Um, I still think it's, more unlikely than not that Starmer won't have to resign, but it's there's still, I think, a, a real possibility that he will, just because the the lockdown laws at the time were so sort of Byzantine. You know, it, it's it's very very hard to predict whether or not he did fall foul of them, and they changed, you know, over over many months. And so I I think it's it's a real possibility that we could have two leadership elections and a general election very rapidly on the trot. 
Let's see if we can get Hendo into the conversation. Hendo has a uh, a beer glass as his Twitter avatar. What could possibly go wrong? Hello. Oh, Hendo, I'm trying to get you on. Are you listening on your smartphone app? I suspect you're not, Hendo. I, I couldn't quite get you on air there. My my apologies. Jeevan, um, uh, just as we're discussing kind of the politics of the moment, <laughs> I, I just wonder what you think of Keir Starmer's decision to de- to effectively say Labour is not the party of the Remainer or indeed the Rejoiner and that Labour will not rejoin the single market, will not re-enter a situation where the UK has freedom of movement. I know that will have disappointed many people who still hanker back to the European Union, but it seems to me he's drawn a, a very sharp line under Labour's stance previously, that there is no room for ambiguity, and he's been quite astute politically in that it defangs the issue. The, the Tory press and indeed the Conservative Party can't hold Brexit or the suspicion of being a rejoiner against him. Yeah, I think it's entirely right. It was the right political decision. It's also where the country has been and was been. The country doesn't want to go back to that particular maelstrom. You know, speaking personally for a moment, I was a Remainer. I went for that, like, second vote march. I wanted it, and we lost, right? We lost uh, We lost the referendum, and then we lost that election very badly. It was at that point time to accept it and move forward. And when you're given where what Keir Starmer wants to do is very clear, Keir Starmer really wants to win and become Prime Minister, which is his job, by the way, as leader of the opposition. He should absolutely go and find a way to do that. And this is the best way to neutralise this particular attack and say, actually, look, we do accept that Brexit has happened. We want to make it work, and we're now going to move forward. Rejoining as well as a project would be a very difficult one. I think you're looking at something that would take, uh, I mean, not just years, but maybe even decades, and that's not even beginning to start on a political consensus. And I can't imagine anyone in the country is going to thank uh, the Labour Party would want to vote for them. And in particular, where those voters are, he needs to win back. Those people who were Labour and voted Leave and went to the Conservatives, you know, getting them back is effectively worth two votes you like in the pocket. It's one in your pocket and one away from your main opponent. And those are the votes he needs to get back in order to win the next election. Number one, of the problems the Labour Party faces at this point in time is that their vote is clustered in major cities. Lots of graduates who are precarious, who can't afford to get on in life, who are, who are paying money in rent as opposed to mortgages, members of my generation, who vote for Labour, but they're also seeing, of course, that that means their votes are wasted only first past the post. There are something like 13 constituencies, constituencies in this country where the millennials make up over 40% of the population. Almost no constituencies where that is true of pensioners. So really you want to win back those people. They're not the strong remainers. They are those in the middle. And that's where Kirsten is going. Mm. Uh, Adam, uh, Boris Johnson has been called out many times on this podcast for being a liar. And I think I even made a comment on the BBC once, though it may have been one of the last times I worked for them, when I said I can safely say on air without fear of being sued, that the Prime Minister is a liar. And he is, he's a proven liar. Time and time again, he has lied. That doesn't seem to have harmed him. He'll claim great success in coming through COVID, particularly with the vaccination. He'll claim success with the support for Ukraine. How honestly do you think his Prime Ministership will be remembered if he's to go now? 
well, not very well. <laughs> I mean, I think it's this. There's lots of these uh, statements coming out from Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid and, and and others who are resigning tonight, all making the moral case for why he resigned, uh, including his dis- proven dishonesty, the fact that he is a liar. He's key, he's portrayed as being key in the decision, but actually, the reality is that were Boris had Boris Johnson romped home in those by-elections a couple of weeks ago. Um, we would not be having this conversation right now. Uh, this comes down to power uh, and whether they believe he is still a winner. Uh, the only reason Johnson became prime minister is because the Conservative Party was in a real mess back in 2019 and they believed they could be heading out of government altogether. And so they pulled the emergency call and went for Johnson's as kind of last hope uh, of winning the next general election. They worked quite, out quite well for them in 2019. But now the calculation is that it's no longer working for them and that he's no longer a winner. And a lot of the pressure, if Johnson doesn't go immediately, will come from the grassroots. Um, and next year, there's we had the local elections this year, and they're mostly in sort of metropolitan districts in cities, and they were pretty bad for the Conservatives. Next year, the local elections are mostly in sort of rural areas. And so there's going to be a lot of conservative councillors around the country and activists looking forward to those and going and looking at the state of the government and thinking they could be out of their seats, out of their job on on councils around the country. And so there can be a lot of pressure put on MPs from the grassroots to to take action. Um, And I think ultimately, I think that will be effective and I think he will be out. And when he is out, what will we remember him by? I think I think predominantly, I mean, you, you've seen the polling, you've seen the focus groups, you've seen those word clouds that, that sort of do the rounds on, on Twitter. The predominant thing that people think about when they think about Boris Johnson is lying. I think that's how he ultimately will be remembered. Let's bring in uh, Oh Hello Troll, who we've spoken to, I think, before on the on Ballon Radio, the Ballon Times podcast. Hello, Hello Troll. Hello. Yeah. I, I think this is sort of my usual disclaimer. I'm certainly not a draw. Um, uh, I, I think I have a question for Adam. Uh, basically, so you mentioned that Lord Macdonald's letter today made a huge impact, but I sort of, I agree, but I s- slightly disagree with the fact that um, it's, isn't it that there, there has been a slew of all these um sexual misconduct allegations against several MPs. So there was Imran Ahmed, who has been convicted, I think. And then there was uh, the uh, there was a porn thing, uh, making uh, everybody um, uncomfortable around. Um, yeah, that was around the, the, the tractor porn story, yeah. Yeah, and then, again, there, I, I think there, there's uh, Matt Hancock, and then there's jo- Boris Johnson's own story. And then I think it, it did, didn't all of it weigh down. I think those... People have probably been thinking. Actually, it it's not just um, the sleazy party. It's sort of like the sexual sleazy party. That's what it comes to mind now when I think of think about the Tory party from the last um, perhaps um, a month or two months because it, everything has sort of been building up. Yeah, no. Well, that's an interesting point, Adam. That that you know, it the, it, it might be the sleaze what has done for him. We chatted on the uh, most recent episode of the Byline Times podcast about how sadly sexual misconduct is not the domain of any one particular political party. You know, many of them have had issues, but uh, I wonder if there is this issue here around an accumulation 
of mm. sexual misconduct. Well, I mean, I think there, you're right. There are there is this problem within all the political parties, but the sort of volume and scale and frequency of these scandals in the Conservative Party does seem to be a sort of cut above, without without doubt. Um, is this is this the factor that that's brought Johnson down? I'm not entirely convinced. Uh, these, I mean, these scandals go back many years, and there's you know people have known about this for many years. I think what's hurt him about it is his attitude towards it, and some of the things he's reported to have said. The fact that he hasn't taken it seriously, the fact that he was told um, about Chris Bincher and 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 joked, laughed it off and put him in. Anyway, and I think it's kind of indicative of, of sort of broader doubts about him uh, in the Conservative Party and the sort of broader criticisms of him. Um, and I, I'm also, I don't know if it if it's something that kind of is felt more by the public than some of the other scandals. It, it may well be, but no, I think it's it's more of a, a symptom of the sort of broader dissatisfaction with Johnson rather than the, the actual cause of his downfall. Mm. Well, let's hear from uh, Brenda. Hello, Brenda. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you so much for giving me some space, Adam. I'm uh, I'm I'm in Belfast. If I could possibly ask you two questions. Um, obviously, we're in the middle of a massive crisis here, and we've just seen an article that's been released that the far right parties in the EU are now attempting to shut down any debate regarding the breaches of international law regarding the protocol. Mm-hmm. That's just developing. That's just come out. Um, the second part, and, I, and I'm asking this because this is a question that we're frequently asking here as ordinary citizens of Northern Ireland, because a lot of us neither identify to either political spectrum. We just really want to get on with our lives here. But how come um, the British media ignored the fact that Liz Truss and David Frost set and had negotiations and looked for advice from paramilitary groups and organised crime here. The LCC are closely affiliated with the DUP, and in January, Liz Truss excluded the media and had meetings with organised crime lords and loyalist paramilitaries. Can you tell me why that was never really fully addressed? Well, I think it's it's certainly the, the case that um, generally the... Uh, Northern news of what happens in Northern Ireland, Northern Irish politics is very much underplayed in in the UK, and you don't often on the BBC is very undercovered. You don't often see, um, considering how important it is and, and what a significant section of the United Kingdom it is, it's very much underreported. Um, so yes, I, I agree with you on that, uh, and it should have greater prominence. Um, and of course, in the Brexit referendum, I think it was very telling that actually Northern Ireland played a, almost a no part in, in the debate over whether or not uh, we should leave the European Union. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, not on that particular story, why that hasn't um, had much play in, in the UK media. But it's, as I say, it's certainly the case that, that in general, uh, coverage of, of Northern Ireland is very much uh, less than, than what it should be. 
Yeah, and uh, Brenda, if I can chip in there, and I, I don't mean in any way to be disrespectful to the situation in Belfast or Northern Ireland, but I live in Birmingham, and we always feel that stories here are not ignored, are not taken as seriously as if they're in London. But at the same time, you know, the issues that you raise, and I, I, I confess I'm unaware of the situation that you've described around Liz Truss, so perhaps I, I ought to be more shamefaced about that, but I suspect most of the... Westminster media hunts in packs and they report the same news, they speak to many of the same sources. Of course, Adam at Byline Times is an honourable exception, but unless it's right there in front of people, it, 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 it just doesn't exist, I think, for many people. And I, I think even something as basic, Brenda, as the, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol, people in Westminster did discuss it. The mainstream UK media did discuss it. Johnson said that there would be a border down the Irish Sea over his dead body. I mean, what a thing for a politician to say, over his dead body. And yet he signed an agreement that put that border in place and hasn't been handed out of office. I go by the media. I mean, you know, (laughs) go on. I understand, but I I just want to make one point. I understand that um, the government is now in meltdown over um, sexual assaults within the British government. And whilst that is only right and proper, it's not the first time it's happened. But I just want the people here that are listening to know we are literally sitting in Northern Ireland wondering if some people here are going to be murdered due to the ineffectual behaviour of the Tory government when it came to the Northern Ireland Protocol. We are talking life and death and we are not going back to what happened before. Mm. And the fact that the the Tory government set with loyalist paramilitaries who are still active in violence, whilst we listened to years about Jeremy Corbyn being an IRA sympathiser, but yet in January, Liz Truss and David Frost have set with loyalist terrorists, one who is currently in prison for being caught with guns and and, uh, other equipment. And it's been completely ignored. So I understand that the, the UK is a meltdown over the Tory party. But please bear in mind that we are sitting over here and we're concerned for the welfare of our fellow citizens when it comes to a life and death situation. No, absolutely, Brenda. You know, and our, our thoughts are with you on that as well. And, you know, Jeevan, one of the peculiarities, I think, of recent times, this is rele- important, relevant to, to Northern Ireland, it's relevant to Scotland, it's also relevant to Wales, is that the Conservative and Unionist Party, I, I think generally, but particularly with its attitude to Brexit, the Conservative and Unionist Party has put the union in all of its constituent parts in jeopardy. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. It's become, you know, to some extent, kind of the anti-facts and the anti-truth party. You know, you spoke about that border in the Irish Sea, and now the question is, or now what we've seen the reaction to be, is to rather than deal with these issues and take them head on is to either deny they exist or deny it's their fault. It's been very strange to see. And the same thing was indeed true of the Brexit deal we've had. You know, David Davis asked what was the benefit of it all. And he says, well, I don't know. And then come back to me and compare to the Sunlit App plans kind of people were promised. Yeah, it's certainly true. And it is somewhat bizarre and deeply, deeply 
worrying. But in, in honesty, you know, we're, we're talking about this now. We talk about how um, Boris Johnson, there's this point, and that is certainly true. But something else you should remember is that you know, the seeds of this were also sown underneath the Cameron government. The current government was always willing to kind of attack Europe, ignore the kind of issues that would happen in Northern Ireland in order to suit itself wherever it got through the new cycle of the day or the week or the month and never really had much of an idea. You know, for the 10 years this Conservative government has had in, had in programme, had been in office, it's very difficult to find a positive policy programme they wanted to enact for the country. And indeed, now we're stuck here again. And once again, we are beginning to realise that the Conservative Party may be good at the tactics of, of winning elections, but her strategy of what they want to achieve in government, indeed keeping the union together as a whole, is something they've really considered. I confess I didn't know the the, the groups to which uh, Brenda was referring in to her chat, and you'll have to forgive me on, on that, Brenda. Uh, but uh, I know that in you know, recent times, groups like the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, have been threatening violence if the Northern Ireland Protocol is axed. And, you know, there's, uh, uh, who knows whether, how real these threats of violence are, but they're, they're really, really terrifying. And those of us who remember the violence that happened in Northern Ireland and indeed in Britain uh, in the 70s and 80s, we'll just be hoping and praying that none of that kind of violence ever returns. Um, let's speak to Mordecai, who's a caller from the United States. Hello, Mordecai. Welcome. Hey, Adrian. Uh, hi, Adam. Um, my question is, uh, well, using the phrase that Brenda used, the complete meltdown that the government is now experiencing. So there are many um, national issues that uh, Boris Johnson and whoever else is going to be left uh, will have to deal with. But it seems to me that the war in Ukraine is, I'm afraid that it's just going to, you know, disappear and uh, disappear from our radar and all of the good that we have uh, supplied to them, um, people aren't going to be paying attention to it, or it, we won't be paying attention. When I say we, I mean Britain will be won't be paying attention to that and continuing to provide the support. Um, is that something that uh, should be a concern, or is a concern that people have? Interesting question then. So will Ukraine be forgotten, particularly if Johnson goes Adam? Um, no, I don't think Ukraine will be forgotten. I don't think there will be a real shift in policy um, from whoever is conservative. If, in some respects, if there is a leadership election, it will be incumbent on all of the candidates will feel a lot of pressure to be even more pro-Ukrainian than, than Johnson was. So no, I don't think it really will make a, a fundamental difference to to the situation in Ukraine. Does that reassure you, Mordecai? I mean, I, I think the, the threat that Putin poses to the West in general is of sufficient gravity that I think whoever's in Downing Street and whoever's in power in Paris and Berlin is going to have to be awake to it. That's my personal view. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And that makes a lot of sense, Adam, what you're talking about, that... Uh, it's going to be a major um, topic uh, that people will have to um, address when they're vying for particular um, 
particular candidate, so to speak, uh, in an election, whether it's within the party or an actual general election. Uh, can I just, can I just uh, cut in, uh, Adrian? Yeah. I just got some breaking news on the reshuffle. Um, Nadim Sahawi has been made Chancellor. Um, Steve Barkley, as we know, has been state of, he's Secretary of State for Health. Um, Michelle Donnellan will be uh, Education Secretary replacing Sahawi. So it seems like Sahawi did win that, that power battle, uh, demanding the job of Chancellor uh, over this trust. So that's interesting development. Indeed. And do we know, very early, it's only just broken, uh, what that's likely to mean economically? Um. Well, he is very much on the uh, sort of uh, on the right of the party, Nadeem Sahawi, um, in favour of low taxes. I think we could, and that's certainly what what Johnson is keen to do. And if he does plan to survive, I think you know there will be pressure on Sahawi to announce some some sort of headline grabbing tax cuts. So I think, um, and even if he if he does go and is replaced, I think it's likely that that's the direction the party will want to head in in order to win support back from a lot of newspapers that have sort of been erring in recent weeks and months. It's one of these weird things, Jeevan, I think, you know, I think the phrase is cognitive dissidence, isn't it? It's what what people believe, what what they understand to be the case, and what really is that the Conservatives always like to say, we are the party of low taxes. As a matter of fact, in 2022, they are not the party of low taxes. Now, there may be good reasons for that, not least the recovery from the pandemic. And many people felt that, although it wasn't handled perfectly by Rishi Sunak economically, that at least many of the most vulnerable people in society were protected. But you can only do that by taxing people at a significant level. We have an NHS which is in crisis and the government in, in increased national insurance in order to pay for social care in the long term, although in the short term most of that money is continuing to go into the NHS, which still continues to flounder. So if people are going to want the kind of protections of a social welfare society – they're going to have to pay for it, aren't they? Yeah. And either you accept that you get paid relatively high taxes and have a, a significant degree of social welfare, or you can have low taxes. But if you have low taxes, you won't get an NHS that can deal with many of the problems that people are going through at the moment, or you won't have a proper social care system. You know, you, you, you can have one or the other, but not both together, it seems to me. I don't know you could... Perhaps also maybe want to tax conservative donors, which they'd be perhaps even less inclined to do so. You know, remember that national insurance of 12 billion originally? You could have got that from the wealthiest people in the country, right? Five billion on capital gains tax, five billion by taxing every transaction in the city and two billion from a mansion tax. That's complete anathema to the Conservative Party and indeed anathema to whoever will come in. I'd agree. It's a it's this it's the circle that I don't think can be squared. I'd also agree, by the way, I would expect there to be tax cuts as being a primary response to this cost of living crisis, what I'd expect to come next. I'd expect to try and redraw kind of Osborne's coalition of, you know, on the one side, income tax cuts, on the other side, generous pensions, and try and use that to get through uh, to the next election and hope they're going to win it. It's what I think they've kind of got left. But also, you know, 
given the commensurate or rather given the scale of the challenge ahead, I'm not sure it will be commensurate to how people really feel it. And as you said, a lot of tax rises already coming in place and as well, not a lot of growth to get those revenues in place and also someone who doesn't want to borrow a lot of money. I mean, let's not forget as well, Nadine Zahawi may be Chancellor today, but it's not clear that he'll ever really end, end up ever delivering a budget. I'm not sure what he'll end up doing at all. I'm not sure how clear how long he'll spend at the Treasury. You know, it's it's very odd position for him to be in. But personally, though, I mean, look at the general rule, you know, power between chancellors and prime ministers is a zero-sum game. The more powerful one is, the more the weaker the other person is. And at this point in time, given how weak Boris Johnson is, Nadim Zahami will be able to get his own way. And let's see the first way he got his own way is that actually he got the job. Yeah, well, Cathy, uh, who's been uh, invaluable tonight, tweeting that he was uh, opposed to the pending rising corporation tax, for example. But there are big issues facing the country, as you say, the cost of living crisis, the state of the NHS, which anybody who relies upon it, like me, will tell you is in a real mess, notwithstanding the fantastic efforts of doctors and nurses and cleaners and all of the other staff who make the NHS what it is. But it is in a mess. And it, the, the only way you get out of that mess is by increasing the funding for it. Cost of living crisis. Hopefully we're not going to have another pandemic. But, you know, these are these are interesting times in which to be talking about massive tax cuts. But there we go. Here we are. Um, just one final thing before we go. And I've, I've lost the, uh, the tweeter who made this comment. Oh, here we go. You'll like this, Adam. You'll like this, Jeevan. From a guy called Alan Ferrier on Twitter. Quote, surely this must mean the end for Boris Johnson. Ancient British proverb. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's, uh, we shall see if this really is the end. But listen, thank you so much to Adam. Thank you so much to Jeevan. I'm sure I told you both you'd be about 15 or 20 minutes. (laughs) But it's been great having you both. Uh, Adam Bienkoff is the political and Westminster editor of the Byline Times. Jeevan Sander, an economist and political commentator at the LSE. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you to everybody who's taken part, whether you've added a comment in or whether you've just been listening. Really do appreciate it. And do please tell all your friends. This is Adrian Goldberg on Byline Radio, or if you've been listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. If you buy our wonderful monthly newspaper, you make broadcasts like this possible. So please take a subscription if you can. You'll also get a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by our colleague Hardeep Matharu. Uh, thank you very much indeed for listening. You can find details on how to subscribe, by the way, at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. See you all again very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye now.